this is what taught me to think about that exit yeah. and those initial loans the most. Cause then, you know, if you're going to just have that loan for a year and a half, like the rate, it's obviously important, but it's more important to have that 1% or zero yeah. exit. Whereas if you did a, you're not thinking and you say, oh, I'll do yield maintenance and then rates move a little and it's 20% to break your loan. Yeah. Well, that's then you like, you need to match up your exit with your, yeah, with your business plan. I, I'd love to see that spreadsheet and hear your and Kunder's conversations on the yeah. analysis there. Listen, everybody, we all know that real estate is the most proven way to build wealth. But why isn't everyone wealthy from real estate then? It's hard to know where to start. And most of the education out there is just complete trash. And you end up investing your money on a series of courses instead of in real estate. That's not how this podcast works. We give you the blueprint to successful real estate investing and bring on guests actually willing to share their secrets. I started my real estate investing journey as a freshman in college when I bought my first duplex and have been in the trenches doing deals ever since. And today, I now own hundreds of millions of dollars of investment property. On this podcast, you will learn what you actually need to know to be a successful active or passive real estate investor. And we'll offer our takes on what's happening today so you can navigate this market and build wealth. I'm Drew Brenneman, and this is the Brenneman Blueprint. Appreciate you joining me today. So for today's episode, what I want to do is go back and replay an episode that I put out pretty early on in the podcast. I think I've done a couple replays before, but um, really, I only will do this if the episode is uh, something that is really timely and something that I think people need to hear today. And then also came out pretty early you know, or came out a while ago. So if you're a newer listener, you know, or joined us maybe within the last year, um, you would have probably missed this episode unless you went back and kind of studied some of the prior ones. But the episode I want to replay today is episode 15. And that was with Jim Voza, who's with CBRE. What Jim Voza does is he specializes in Freddie Mac uh, small balance loans and Fannie Mae small balance loans. So these loans are only on multifamily properties uh, that are five units or more. And I th- the minimum loan amount, I believe, is $1 million. Uh, but, you know, if there's anything said differently by Jim in the episode, go with what he said for sure. I'm doing this just from memory on the fly. But uh, and then the max loan amount in the program is seven and a half million in the top markets and then five or six million in the standard markets for the max loan amount. And so this program, I've done a, a couple dozen of these uh, Freddie Mac uh, small balance loans. Sounds kind of crazy to say that that's such a big number. But, um, you know, for from 2013 to 20. 19 really the playbook for us was you buy an existing property we put a freddie sbl loan on it with the most flexible prepay we can get the three one zero 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 prepay and then um do our value add raise the rents uh do our light renovation or just you know and then um refinance the property again with the freddie mac small balance loan typically then going in more into a five-year step down 10-year step down or yield maintenance um getting longer term fixed but also increasing the loan proceeds with the higher noi and pulling out all of our our equity so across 13 deals we did with this type of loan in chicago um, on average we acquired the property, put the loan on, and then within about an average of a year, we refinanced out over 100% on average of our initial equity that was put into the property. So we were able to 
uh, with this program. And you'll hear this in the episode because I go through the same thing, kind of highlighting what we did. But just to talk about how it's helped me a lot, and then I'll say how it's applicable today, and then let's just roll with the uh, with the episode. But um, what we did is I had three million dollars of equity from my first investor uh, for to put into Chicago deals. So we bought three properties that were roughly $10 million in total. Um, we put, depending on the deal, 20 or so percent down and some a little more, some needed some renovation. So that's why 3 million and 10, that's 30% down. But then the third one we bought, we put a fair amount in, in renovations that we, that we funded mostly out of cash. Anyway, so what we did with that 3 million, we bought those properties. And then for most people, that's sort of like, that's it. I got my three properties and I'll just make whatever the market return is on just buying three apartment buildings in Chicago. But what we were doing is value add deals. So what we were doing is we were acquiring them, uh, doing something to improve the, the rental income. So on the first two, we just could walk in there day one and raise the rents. The first deal we bought in Chicago was 16 units, uh, 12 three bed, two baths and four two bed, two baths and the three bed, two bath units, they were renting for like $2,600 on average, I'd say. And we knew we could get $3,000 just looking at the market. So that was our whole business plan. And you raise the rents that much, um, without putting in any more money into it. I mean, you're creating a lot of value. You know, if you, anytime you make a pro forma, if you could just change the rents up $400 a unit, there a lot of values created. And then like a year and a half later on that deal, it, it appraised for almost $8 million. So then we put a new, um, and sorry, that's without knowing the purchase price that wouldn't be too useful. We paid 5.7 million for it. And then a year or so later, it appraised for $8.6 million. And we put a six and a half million dollar mortgage on it and pulled out more than we put into it. You know, so we paid five, seven and then financed um, six and a half million dollars. So that was just one of many deals that we did. So then kind of what we did was so we bought those first three deals. Then we refinanced out all of our equity. So then we have three million again, you know, or a little more in this case um, with how well the first deal went. And then we bought three more deals or whatever the number was, but then we bought another $10 million of property. Then we refinanced all those deals after doing the same thing. We bought another $10 million of property. So now we have $30 million of property and still only that original $3 million in. Then we refinanced out the equity on those, uh, those, the, the third round of deals. Uh, and then we couldn't find any good deals from there. This would have been like in 2018. So interest rates were ticking up rates got into the fives. Um, but like the prices didn't really drop much. So it was harder to make deals pencil. Uh, so then we just the uh, returned the money to our investor and said, you know, this is we're not finding deals that hit this criteria. And I mean, one thing that's, uh, you know, important in investing is not to be pushing deals and doing deals you shouldn't be doing because now, you know, he has his three million dollars back and is happy with the outcome. Whereas if we just pushed it into some subpar deals from there, um, you know, maybe nobody would be happy. So, um, so that's how we've used the program and why this is so applicable today. Uh, and I wanted to replay it, make sure people saw it is if you're investing in real estate now and you're buying deals, the, the capital markets, the, uh, that's like a fancy term. So the financing markets, the banks, the, the debt funds, the life insurance companies, every, everybody is really lending conservatively or just has, um, hit the pause button. You know, these banks, these other, these funds, the life insurance companies, they're not getting as many loan payoffs as normal. So then they're not 
sort of recycling that money. So let's say they have a book of loans. It's however many billions of dollars. And normally what happens is they have a certain amount of loans be paid off in a given year. And then they, they have, they make new loans, but right now they don't want to overextend their loan book where they're not getting stuff paid off. They don't want to grow their loans too much uh, because of all this sort of uh, they want to make sure they have enough deposits on hand for the amount of loans they have out. Um, so there's this whole interplay between not getting enough payoffs, interest rates going up. You know, so the the lending market has really slowed down. But one thing that has not slowed down is the agency lenders. And so one of the things that really makes multifamily sort of stand on its own as uh, the, the best asset class is you have access to Fannie and Freddie and also FHA and in and, uh, and HUD. In, in times like in all times and in times like this, most all deals I see happening or refinancings, it's all with the agencies. So what I did in this episode with Jim is we did a total deep dive for over an hour on every intricacy of the program. Uh, and, and I've just and so if you'll you'll know everything you need to know by listening to this episode about the program. So if you're doing deals where the loan amounts are one to seven and a half million dollars and you're not using this program, you really need to listen to this because this might be where you're getting your next loans from, where if the bank you normally go to or whatever lender you had been using is, is, you know, quoting really high rates now or telling you, um, you know, Hey, we're, we're kind of on the sidelines right now. Um, or don't want to, renew a deal like uh renew a loan and they want you to go elsewhere and this might be where you're going so wanted to put it sort of out uh again in really not much has changed with the program if we say any rates obviously this is from like 2021 or start of 2022 so not the rates are obviously higher today than whatever if that came up in the podcast but um the way the program works for the interest only options how the loans are sized and uh, the prepay options and just sort of how, how the program works, that's really unchanged. The only thing is this, you know, the underlying indexes have gone up a lot. And so then the, your mortgage rate has as well. So without any further ado, with Jim Voza, CBRE with the uh, Fannie and Freddie Small Balance Programs. Kind of the program genesis was there was a need for loans, let's say at that time, five million and under just a streamlined process, keep the origination costs uh, like a streamlined amount because i i guess prior if you had a smaller deal let's call it they uh i was being quoted as a fanny like the options where you can do the whatever the program was called where it's a three million or less loan amount and right. then there was some sort of cutoff at three million that was in 2012 what people would talk about right so then if uh so really that was the the point of the program was we want to so that needs yeah yeah and i think i i think freddie mac obviously was an established multifamily lender at that point yeah, when it launched in 2014, but, but probably a majority of their loans that they were originating were larger properties, larger loan amounts. And really what wasn't getting addressed were, uh, uh, owners of five to 50 unit properties that maintained yeah. safe, uh, affordable properties for the workforce, which is, uh, you know, Freddie Mac and Fannie Mae's mission to help provide affordable housing for the workforce throughout the country. Um, but I think they realized that th those smaller properties where majority of the uh, workforce was living were yeah. not being addressed. Um, so they, they, they put an emphasis on that and uh, obviously took some time to get the program in place and together. 
Uh, but I think they did a very good job doing it. And the programs changed a little bit here and there, as you know, with their requirements. But the amount of affordable units they've financed across the country since the beginning is amazing. Yeah. You know, it's it's we see those numbers every year and they have a mission to finance affordable units and they they meet it and blow it out of the water every year. So, yeah, they're and, doing what they intended to. Yeah. And by affordable, that could be like Section 42 housing or just rents that are uh, yeah. lower. Let's say market rate. Yes. And units. really, when we say affordable, I mean, it doesn't there doesn't have to be any Section 8 involved with it. It's just a. A, a rental rate that is uh, that qualifies as affordable in the market you're in. Yeah. Um, so but the program it's it's on all like multifamily product types really. Like I I don't want uh, people to think oh this is for affordable. How yeah you know you're right. This is for like market rate housing. We're all just day. full market rate and we're not at rates that were deemed affordable yes. in the county either. Yes. Now in the small balance program, we finance market rate housing. We finance uh, properties with with uh, voucher based Section 8 tenants or other subsidies or not for profits that are providing voucher based type transactions. Um, when you get into a, a, a property with a deed restriction that's that's got a project based contract yeah. on it, that doesn't fit great in the small balance world really? for the agencies, but they have their affordable programs, yeah. which is where that fits well into. Um, so they cover all those property types and, and it certainly does not have to have a, an affordable component to qualify for Freddie Mac small balance program, although a vast majority of them do. And, and that's sort of the part that matches with yeah. their mission. Yeah. And cause where they really are, you know, the, the goal of having just more affordable housing and they're, they're creating a real, real great debt source for, especially like say not in the major markets. If you yeah, if you're in rural Wisconsin or just right. wherever, you know, there's maybe there's like a few banks that cover that, but then this is a program sort of nationwide. Fanny, yeah, Fanny small banks will basically lend anywhere. Exactly. So yeah, and and that, and that's a very good point. I mean, if we're in a tertiary small market, we have a, a solid, experienced landlord um, that maintains his property, maintains a safe community for his tenants, and offers affordable rents. If historically that landlord's been struggling to find financing for this property to keep it going, this this product that was launched in 2014 has is, is really filled a gap for that that uh, that investor. And that's exactly the type of uh, of client that Freddie Mac likes to lend to. Yeah. So then maybe let's dive into the actual program then. And so I guess kind of first thing everyone wants to talk about is rates. Yep. But rates change. So then I think probably the I would say the best way to describe the rates is they are going to be at least as competitive as the bank yeah. you would maybe use. And then oftentimes slightly lower. Right. And then from from there, there's a million options on how you can, you know, maybe not a million, but a lot of options on how you can set up your loan with right. different uh, fixed rate terms you can pick, fixed rate to adjustable, interest yep. only terms, five different, you know, quite a few different. We printed out the sheet here, but a bunch of different uh, prepay structures. Right. You can go full term interest only, right? Uh, lower LTV. So then, I think let's just dive into the program wherever you want to start. Right. Yeah, and I'll I'll start with that rate conversation. I mean, me and you and I see uh, see rates all the time. So I I put our rates right on par with the most competitive uh, rates, uh, depending on the lending source across the country. I mean, banks we're right there with them all the time. Um, these rates are competitive uh, for everyone but they have extra incentives for properties that qualify as affordable. So, and again, this is just looking at a rent roll and what the current's rent are compared to what's affordable in the market. So it doesn't have to be a section eight rent. It's just a market right. rent. 
But as you get affordable rents in place, then all of a sudden they're offering interest rate discounts to make them more competitive. And what's um, like the range of discounts someone would be talking about? Yeah, so those go really anywhere from 15 basis points all the way to, to uh, uh, 50 basis points, wow. depending on the level of affordability um, and depending on the market. And the way they look at that, this could be a market rate deal. And just they take the there's a are they looking up that Fannie average rent schedule or what are they looking at? So there's an affordability test for both. And and I think what they're looking at is, is this affordable for someone at this location that makes 80 percent of the area median income? Um, is this rent on the rent roll affordable for someone that makes 60 percent of the area median in, median income? And and if it is like there's different levels, yeah. if if half of the units are uh affordable to someone making 80 percent, we get a, a level one discount if more than 80 percent of the units are affordable we go to a level two discount and then if if we're in the very uh low income category where it's affordable to someone making 60 percent uh, then we even get more discounts okay nice um so it, it's all very property specific we take that exact rent roll we put it against an affordability test and uh depending on the level of affordability that that's calculated, uh, interest rate discounts are available and they're pretty meaningful. Yeah. Pretty meaningful. So, um, so that's the first, first point on, on, uh, on the program is I put our interest rates up against any, uh, any lending institutions, interest rates. We're always right there. Yeah. And in fact, more competitive. Many. Yeah. Times. Actually, when you were describing that, I was thinking what, when there weren't actually a lot of times where if you're, I'm getting a competing quote where it was, there were just a, f a few moments in time where, you know, if they wanted to fan you or Freddie wanted to slow down production where then, then I did a bank loan, but really it's, they've, yeah, they've been right more competitive. If, you know, if that's what you're comparing it with, I think that's the best comparison. Cause sure you could get a lower rate life company loan or something, but we're talking about LTVs that are not right comparable where um, actually maybe that's the next best place. Yeah, to go. no, that's a good one. Yeah. So, uh, but you bring up a good point. I mean, we, you know, not to say a bank's not going to drop their rates and win business if they have a client that they want to keep in house. It happens, yeah. obviously. But if we're talking apples to apples, you know, I put our rates up against anyone's. Um, LTV wise, uh, uh, in standard and top markets, Freddie Mac is routinely 80% on acquisitions and frankly, 80% on refinances right now. Um, that, that cash out refinance LTV dipped a little bit during the, uh, the pandemic yeah. period, but we're back up to 80%. Um, so that doesn't mean on a cash out refinance, every loan will qualify for 80%. I mean, we really need to see a value add story. Um, if we're going to do a cash out refinance at 80%, we need to be dealing with an experienced, uh, sponsor. We need to have a quality asset. We need to have a safe asset. Um, so that's the program parameters though uh acquisitions and refinance and top and standard 80 percent and then acquisitions in small and very small markets were at 75 percent loan to value and then refinances in those markets were going to be at, at 70 percent okay um in top markets right now minimum underwritten debt service coverage at 1.2 times for acquisitions uh, that bumps up if it's a cash out refinance. They want a little extra cushion of, of uh, debt service coverage in there up to 1.25 times. This is in top markets. Top markets. So so a little safer for a cash out yeah. refinance, which makes sense. Um, and then uh, acquisitions in standard, 125 underwritten debt service coverage. And then cash out refinances would bump up to 130. Yeah. And so in a lot of, let's say in the area you work in the Midwest, then I don't think the the debt cover doesn't isn't going to often come into play then where it's because the cap rates are 
I should take that back. Depends what city where. Yeah. Yeah. If you're in yeah, some of these Madison or Minneapolis, you'd be for sure hitting it or a really nice deal in right. Chicago. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, it just sort of depends on the market. I mean, a low cap rate environment, we're going to bump up against the underwritten debt service coverage before we bump up against the LTV constraint. Right. Um, but, in a, you know, a good solid market with affordable rents, we're probably hitting uh, we're probably hitting LTV before we're hitting that debt service coverage yeah. metric. So it, it really depends. I mean, I see just as many uh, of both. You know, I we would see a lot of solid market low cap rate deals where where we hit that debt service coverage constraint first. Yeah, and the way just if someone hasn't heard of a debt service coverage ratio, so that would be our underwritten NOI, underwritten net operating income to your annual amortizing debt service coverage. Um, and so when we say underwritten NOI, it may not be the NOI on your P&L. We're baking in vacancy factors. We're baking in market expenses and comparing them to actual expenses, you know, per an appraiser's guidance. Um, but 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 that's something we have to pay attention to. And we t we'll talk a little bit about sort of, you know, what I, what do I hit first, the LTV constraint or the uh, debt service coverage constraint? Yeah. It really it really is both depends on the market we're in. If it's a low cap rate market, uh, we're hitting that debt service constraint all the time. And right. if it's a, uh, a higher cap rate market, uh, you know, maybe a more uh, affordable, uh, uh, more affordable rent roll with lower interest rate, I'm going to hit the debt, uh, the, excuse me, the, uh, the LTV constraint more so. Right. Yeah. And one thing that I can't stress enough with this program, there's so many different nuances to it. Yes. When you say the underwritten NOI, I mean, we've probably talked for I mean, just countless hours about how this thing's going to be underwritten or right. what would they accept for right. repairs and maintenance and where does trash go? Because that, right. that goes in repairs and maintenance, which is, you know, funny to me, but that right. it's a contract service, but it's repairs for that. So there's so much nuance that so I can't stress enough if you're going to do a loan like this to work with someone like you where that's all you do. Right. Because if you come in through maybe a different intermediary who does these once in a while. Yeah, they don't they don't realize all the different things or they're not talking to, you know, the the main point of contact at Freddie, you know, basically every day. Right. About a loan. And so then you can really help uh, advise people on. Yeah. What what this NOI is going to look like once uh, Fannie or Freddie does their thing to it. Right. And I have a, you know, an army behind me helping me with those things in our CBRE underwriters. Freddie Mac underwriters are great. And then we have enough appraisal contacts uh, where we can talk to appraisers about where they're going to peg taxes. Uh, if our underwritten repairs and maintenance are at, you know, 800 a unit for this 12 unit property, uh, is that realistic? Is that market or am I too low there? Um, so that really almost needs to be done on these deals. Yeah. To set a realistic expectation of where your loan is going to end up at in terms of a loan amount. And then, on the uh, you know along with that where is your interest rate going to end up because we're priced based on where our debt service coverage is where our LTV ends up uh, so really the bulk of that underwriting work should be fleshed out before an application signed um, just to set everyone's expectations right. appropriately um, but you're right you and I have had countless hours of conversations on those things and it's the right thing to do so no one's surprised yeah there's but always going to be a, a surprise here and there but 
you got to do as much homework on the front end uh, as possible to make sure those surprises are limited. Right. But I can't stress enough like you like you some you got to find someone for this that actually knows how these right. things will work. How how are they going to look at the expenses and just because otherwise if you you know, you could send in something that's, you know, going to they're going to make a ton of changes to it when they you know, when they get it. And then you'll be surprised because you're three weeks into the process where you need to work with someone on the front end, make sure it's, you know, sized and set up the way you want right. you know, to proceed instead of just think, okay, I'll just, yeah. instead of your 800, you know, I'm running at 200. They'll right. say, okay. But if you don't do these often, you might say, yeah, seems fine. That's how you're doing it. And right. then they don't, they might not know, no, that's going to get changed. You're exactly or, right. And, and some things they'll, you know, maybe take less than you were thinking as an expense. It depends. It's just. It's really just you got to know what they're what they're doing, yep. you know. So it's yeah, and I'd say it's it's every line item on a P and L on the expense side, especially, right? You have to understand where an appraiser thinks taxes will be going forward. Um, insurance is pretty easy because that's going to be the final insurance right. quote. Um, so that number is what it is. Repairs and maintenance. Are you running this uh, more efficiently than the market? Well, we might have to bump up those assumptions a little bit. Um, so you're exactly right. Uh, working on the front end to make sure uh, you're sort of sizing that appropriately is is everything. Yeah. Yeah. So that's been a, a big thing we spent a lot of time on yep. with you guys. But that's, you know, that's because on the let's say I think one thing maybe then this kind of ties in is the difference in the approval process and how that works between Fannie and yeah. Freddie, because then that's why I was saying you're going to find out a surprise at the end. So maybe right. let's, let's, yeah, let's get into Yeah. That. And usually uh, we come to those surprises much before we're submitting for approval through, you know, receiving a completed appraisal and working with our underwriting teams internally. Um, so to start with Freddie Mac's approval process, you know, many times I'm pre-screening deals with Freddie Mac for whatever reason, if there's uh, an exception we need to waiver on, um, or if they're, you know, if it's, it's a deal that just is a little sort of, uh, different than the norm, it's always good to get in front of my counterparts at Freddie Mac, just to make sure we're flushing out any issues that may come up. Um, so that program, uh, we get an application out and executed. It comes in, we order third party reports, appraisal, physical risk report, and and then our underwriting team completes a full underwriting and, and prepares it to submit for approval to CBRE, then Freddie Mac. Um, that process really is once an application signed in Freddie's program, they have the strong benefit of holding the interest rate, as you know, but we have a timeline by which we have to submit for approval to hold that interest rate, and that's 35 business days. Yep. And then one thing too, what I think is important to know, the difference with Fannie and Freddie's approval process where, and correct me if I'm wrong on the Fannie small balance, but on Fannie conventional that, you know, it's fully delegated to the yep. uh, originator. So then that's why they call it, it's a, you know, dust program, yep. delegated underwriter servicer. So then that approval is going to come really from CBRE. If you're doing a Fannie right. conventional is the same in the small balance. Yep. No, it is. Yeah. So Freddie Mac, we're finishing our underwriting, submitting for approval. And then Freddie Mac's uh, small balance team does uh, their finishing touches on underwriting and then physically submits for approval to their team and then gets back to us with a commitment letter and a, a notification of approval. Fannie Mae, uh, we're dedicated. You're right. So our, our team at CBRE uh, approves these. And once they do, uh, we're uh, off and running, issuing a commitment letter and moving into closing. I will say on the Fannie Mae side, 
things come up as well that are out of the norm for their credit box. Right. So what we do in that instance is we go early for a, a formal quote to Fannie Mae and you know, there's underwriting that goes on on the front end on that, uh, submit a, a, a pricing quote request, get a quote back with the conditions that we've spelled out that are, you know, different than their normal underwriting. And as long as nothing else changes, our, uh, our dedicated team at CBRE can approve that in-house. So that speeds up that approval process a little right. bit. You're exactly and right. And that's, that's why, and I uh, sort of regretted using the word surprise at the end when I said that, but with the, uh, with the Freddie program, but that what I, what I meant by that was, you know, Freddie, they approve it. It's not, it's not delegated to right. a CB or another intermediary. So right. that's why it's super important to work with someone who knows what they're doing on the front end. Yep. Cause if they, if they don't and they throw it into Freddie, yeah, you wait, you know, uh, it takes a few weeks to get it submitted. Then you're waiting two, three weeks to hear back from Freddie. Meanwhile, like the clock's ticking, let's say it's a deal you're buying, you're running out of time to close. And then they, you find out, oh wait, actually they do taxes differently or right. whatever. It's 5% vacancy and you were thinking it's three. Yeah. And then, so that's, that to me is a huge difference, you know? So then that's why working with you guys has been great. Cause you have such a good understanding of the program. Right. We've had no surprises once Freddie decides what to do. Whereas with Fannie, we're sort of, we already kind of are talking to who would approve it. Obviously CB is a big firm, so they have things they need themselves to do a Fannie loan. But exactly. Uh, that so that's what I meant by that, and then that to me is like a huge difference with the program. It is so you got to work with the right person on the it ready is. program. Yep. No, I, I agree with you, and and you know the more work on on both these programs that you do up front just to make sure any sort of nuances of the underwriting are flushed out is ultra important, and that that's obvious. That's really with any deal across any property type, right? Um, but there are nuances uh, to both programs where you know the approval process is different the rate lock is different, yeah. right? So to talk about rate lock a little bit, I mentioned Freddie Mac uh, will hold your rate when you sign an application, as long as you submit for approval in time. Fannie Mae, you have to get to approval and commitment letter and then get some legal clearance before you can rate lock. And that process moves quicker though. So, you know, both are, both are good, but they're a little different, right? We don't have to wait 45, 50 days to get a commitment letter to rate lock in the Fannie program. It's going to be much quicker than that, but it is a little different than the way Freddie Mac does it. Yeah. And to throw some days on that. So then like with Freddie, you're, I guess I always thought it was rate locking at application, but really they're holding the rate. There's not. Any, yeah. It is a confusing it's, sort it's of terminology instrument being executed and, you know, until you're yes. further down with the commitment. But so, yeah, they, they hold your rate. So that's a huge appeal where, especially you're buying a deal. Maybe it's, it makes what you want, but not much more the property. And then to not have any risk at that point with the interest rate, that's a huge plus in my mind. It is absolutely. And a lot can happen in 30 days. I mean, we, yeah. you know, we've seen it over the past five years since this program started six years. Um, so a lot can happen. So having the benefit of locking in a rate, that's a rate that works for you and works for your property is huge. Um, on the flip side, you know, uh, moving, quickly through Fanny's program uh, to get to a point where you can rate lock uh, as quickly as possible is, is huge too. It keeps everyone motivated to, to yeah. move quickly. And I will say most of the time, I mean, the rate is sort of within expectation of, of when we started, but things happen. It's not always the case. Because how many days, let's say after application, is this like a rough? Yeah. So on the Fanny program, yeah. I would say we should be in a position to uh, lock the rate within 30 days. Okay. You know, and that's where we're motivated. We get third parties uh, appraisal and pr 
physical risk report ordered right away. Um, uh, a sponsor, you, the borrower is motivated to get me all the information we need from, from underwriting right away. Our underwriting team uh, goes through all that information. And then we get to a point where we're going to loan committee that really should be able to, to be done in 30 days. I will say now maybe appraisers are so busy that they're, normal two, two and a half week turns are turning into three, three and a half weeks, yeah. but that's going to uh, sort of normalize. I would say our experience is sort of a 30 day rate lock in that, in which that is, program. that's fast then because to is, get all is. those reports back, have the borrower do everything is. they need to do and then review it all. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's, that's all, everyone's that's motivated. Quick. Yeah. Everyone's motivated. It's quick uh, when that happens. So, but it should be able to be done. Great. Yeah. So then that's sort of, that's the approval process, let's say, but now let's, let's talk about what are they looking for, for, for sponsorship then? Good question. Both programs really do value experience. Um, so, you know, our typical or not our typical, our target sort of uh, ideal sponsor has owned multifamily in the market for a period of time. You know, I if I've got a sponsor that owns 10 buildings in the market for 10 years and knows the market in and out is a hands-on sponsor, that's a short conversation on sponsorship. Of course, there's personal financial metrics we have to meet as well, uh, which we can talk about. Um, but if we've got a, a hands-on sponsor that has long-term experience and their product, their inventory of multifamily properties that they own, show it. Yeah. We'd be all over them as, as sponsors that are a great fit for the program. And then let's say without a without any waiver or special exception, what would be because it's the example you gave, that was actually a pretty high bar, 10 properties for 10 years. So yeah, oh, I agree. Yeah. What would be the sort of a a minimum in your mind without needing a waiver? Yes. So I, so uh Freddie Mac's very specific on this. If we if we have three multi family properties under ownership, they uh they meet the sponsorship hurdle. But for how long? So there, I, I don't believe there's a time frame okay. on three. Um, the alternative is one, at least one multifamily property for five years. Got so, it. so there's either, or if you have one multifamily property for either five years or three total, um, then you meet, you technically meet their sponsorship uh, requirement. And they want the property that you currently own the one to three, uh, to be to be in the market that you're going to do Good the question. loan or where you live? What's, what are they Good question. there? No, it doesn't matter. So technically okay. the spot, uh, the exception as, as I recall, it says ownership of three multifamily properties or one for five years. Um, that's not to say if they've owned one for five years in, uh, you know, New Mexico that, and we check the box, uh, for sponsorship per the, uh, exception guidelines, and they want to buy a, a property in Tacoma, Washington, um, that it's an automatic. Yes. Yeah. Right? That might be a different, that's might be different though. We're now we're out of market you know, yes. on a deal there. So the ideal is that they own those properties in the market that we're looking at or have owned some of those properties in the market we're looking at, but that is not a, a that's not technically how it reads. Okay. But that would be a deal that I would pre-screen certainly if, if, uh, if we were getting into a deal that's uh, a new market for the sponsor, but they own properties elsewhere. Right. So, so then not a program for someone's first deal or their first deal in a new market. Yeah. But once you have, you know, your one to three deals under your belt, yeah, this is a great option. So yeah, no, no doubt about it. And I, and let me put it a, a couple different ways. There, there sometimes are reasons to ask to do a deal. If uh, you know, this would be a waiver, an exception waiver, 
if a sponsor doesn't meet that criteria. For example, let's say we have a sponsor that for, you know, the last five years has owned three, four flats in a market and clearly running rental property, you know, doing a good job with them. The properties show well, the properties are performing well, occupancies there. You know, one to four is looked differently. One to four units ownership right. is looked differently than five or more units, um, which is our uh, traditional multifamily. But that's a deal where we ask that that's why there's a waiver process. We ask that uh, we ask for that uh, exception waiver yeah. because they've shown experience in the market. They're buying, say, a six unit right in between uh, uh, two of their four unit properties. Um, there's going to be, uh, you know, if the story's good, there's going to be a, a reason to ask that question for the waiver. And a lot of times Freddie Mac's very reasonable on that. Yeah. And that the, I guess we skipped over it. The program, the small balance program is for five units and more five units like, or more only. And that that's, that's, yep. there's no questions about that. The, yeah. the discussion stops if it's not five units or more. Yeah. Which we might've skipped over that or at least. I for sure. Yeah, no, that, we did. And then what's, is there a minimum loan amount too? So minimum that? loan amounts. And frankly, it's become a very hard minimum of $1 million loan amounts and up. Um, I will say if we have a portfolio of three, four, five loans coming in at one time, and there's a $900,000 loan request as part of that portfolio, I'm always going to ask. That's another one where it's worth asking that question. Uh, if it's an experienced sponsor, it's someone we want to do business with. The properties look good. The financials look good. Occupancy's there. There's a reason to ask to do one sub $1 million loan, but I would consider the program a very hard minimum of $1 million. Got it. So one to either six or seven and a half million of loan amount. That's right. And five plus units. Five plus units. Yep. Got it. Absolutely. And then are there waivers if you're slightly over uh, the the max? Um that one is has been a pretty hard and fast rule, and I think the an right answer is no. Um, it just should move to the conventional program, okay? Because Freddie Mac and Fannie Mae obviously do a lot of deals above right. seven and a half or six million in 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 Fannie Mae's case. Um, those really belong in the conventional space. I don't want to say it's never been done before, but I don't think it's. I've never done it, and I don't think it happens very often. Yeah. I would need to go back and check. We did some loan that was, I think, five million forty thousand, and we needed some sort of we needed two waivers, and I think one of them was we were over the deal size. Yeah, that was one that was yeah. five cap. But I don't remember if that's if that was to be in the small balance program or some sort of like fee break right. on this conventional. Right. This is in twenty fourteen, so then this is uh, so where everything was real early. So yeah. I think maybe we were getting a waiver on something else. But I should go check that one. Yeah, and the that. program has evolved, so. Deal size on the maximum was uh, was more of a gray area at the beginning, and frankly, the minimum too, because we did nine hundred thousand dollar one off deals at the beginning, but we were doing eighty percent deals in small and very small markets at the beginning, and that just doesn't happen anymore. So right. uh, early on, I wouldn't be surprised if it happened more. Uh, I just really don't see it happening at all anymore. Yeah, and then so then I, yeah, and I always for someone's first deal, anyways, they should just use their local bank like that. They they know you. It's it's like that's a much easier loan to get. It's going to be an easy execution. It's your first deal. You should focus on making sure you got the deals yeah. set up the way you want. And then yeah, where this is this is a great product though. Once you you've had that property for a few years, you want a permanent loan on it, right? You know, and now you have the experience. Maybe you're up to three properties, or you've had the one for five, and this is a great, yeah, and that, great that, option. 
I think that's the way that sort of Freddie Mac looks at it as well is, you know, they may say no to a first time buyer. Um, that's not because they don't like the property or they don't think the sponsor can handle it, but their program as a non-recourse program, you know, requires a, a, a comfort level from an under uh, underwriting standpoint that I guess has to be earned if you will. Right. right? And, um, you know, that's, we're partners with a lot of banks. We know banks very well that sort of come in finance, uh, buyers provide flexibility, provide value, add capital. And then, uh, you know, in turn that sponsor then builds uh, credibility, gets the property stabilized and then comes to, an agency small balance loan for a, a sort of stabilized non-recourse option that happens all the time. Right. Um, but I agree with you, you know, to build that sort of credibility and show, um, you know, the experience, a, a bank is a, a very appropriate option for, uh, for some, someone getting into the business. Then let's talk about the sponsorship financial requirements. Yep. So net worth, liquidity, what are we? Yeah. At? So that's pretty simple. Uh, it's if we just want to check the box, you're looking for the sponsorship group to have a net worth equal to the loan amount uh, we're requesting and then liquidity uh, equal to nine months worth of amortizing loan payments on the loan we're requesting. Um, the liquidity one, the down payment is not factored in. Well, it actually is. So the, so like we have to show that post-closing liquidity would be there. Right. So if there's several partners that are in on a deal and let's say only one or two partners are uh, are going to be over twenty five percent, and managers on the uh, proper on the borrowing entity, and therefore are going to sign our loan documents, sign the the carve out uh, non recourse guarantees. We would want to see that those two sponsors post closing would have nine months worth of of uh, amortizing loan payments combined, right? Not individually, but combined. Um, so, you know, and then we just get the story like, hey, the down payment's a million dollars, you know, 400,000 is coming from our two sponsors. Their investors are bringing 600,000. Here's what they're going to have after closing. Right. Um, so pretty simple test. I will say, you know, the while that's sort of a box check, um, it's ideal if you're asking for a million dollar deal, not to have an exact million dollar net worth to have a little buffer. There's great. Um, so that would be looked at. But uh, but those are the metrics. Then what about, then we got into the 25% control thing. So then who, who is defined as a sponsorship group? Yeah. So, a uh, a, uh, we have to underwrite any individual or entity with 25% or more ownership along with any individual or entity with management authority within the borrowing entity. So if you're a 10% owner, but you're the sole manager of the borrowing entity, you're going to be fully und underwritten. Um, who has to sign the carve-out guarantees? Ideally, any en entity or individual with 25% or more ownership or management authority on the borrowing entity. There are certain cases where we get deals where, you know, say we have a 40% owner who really is a limited partner um, that does not want to sign out on those carve-out guarantees. As long as we know that up front, and our carve-out guarantors uh, are signing and meet all of our financial requirements, that can get done. Anyone with management authority in the borrowing entity, though, is going to have to sign a carve-out guarantee. Right. Yeah, or if someone on, the, on those 
managers can just carry the whole thing then they don't look to that, the yes 25 percent yes yeah so if, yeah so if you have a 30 percent owner who really is limited with no management authority and is totally against signing it won't do it and we have you know another sponsor that meets what we need has the experience and, and has all the management authority we're going to be fine uh, yeah. getting that done that's the case with us right at this point we're, we carry the yeah financial requirements the experience the everything so then we did we're yeah that's what we're yep doing something that was the case but yeah then let's then for non-recourse let's get to talk about that some so then this you know so this program when we say non-recourse there's no except for a few limit you know instances yeah there's not a personal repayment guarantee that you're making yeah there's yeah there's not a full personal guarantee so your base recourse in these deals and this would be most deals again i've done a a couple one-off deals where we for what whatever reason needed a little recourse personal recourse that is very much not the norm um so in most of these deals, your base recourse, you individually as, as carve-out guarantors and the borrowing entity has a base recourse of zero, but there's always carve-outs to that. You know, the most obvious ones are uh, fraud. Uh, fraud's committed and there's a loss to the lender because of that. Uh, the individuals that sign those guarantees are going to be personally responsible for that. Uh, property negligence, um, losses because taxes aren't paid or insurance isn't paid, things of that nature. You're mishandling an insurance claim, I think. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, and so the reason they call that a carve out then, I mean, really the term came from like, then those are things that are carved out of this non-recourse right. section saying you there's no personal repayment uh, obligation, except if you do this and this and this, and right. these 10 things basically that are, you know, I mean, easy not to do kind of, but yeah, you know, it'll, it'll happen or you could get in uh, you, something to be aware of where, you know, these are, these, uh, so it's a great program where then, you know, let's say you have 10 buildings and you've been using just only bank financing and doing full recourse. You kind of put these to bed where except for these carve outs, you're you're not you're not on the hook for repayment. Right. Obviously, no one goes in with the plan of losing a property, but it's right. You know, you really can sleep well at night. You know, we got done 24 of these. We right. it up before we started, um, you know, so I. You know. Yeah, no, it's definitely a benefit to the lender. And a lot of, you know, a lot of lenders are exclusive or excuse me. It's a benefit to the borrower. A lot of borrowers are exclusive non-recourse borrowers and they see big value in it we do too um but there are carve outs associated with that and uh you know it's just something to be mindful of um freddie mac does uh i get the question a lot like why am i signing a guarantee oh freddie mac works with a uh uh single counsel so there's always an outside third party uh lawyer on these deals to help close them and i lean on those lawyers uh quite a bit uh, to sort of walk borrowers through sort of the loan documents and where it shows you that a base recourse is zero, but there are carve outs to that. So, you know, we can explain that when the question comes up. Um, but, you know, it's right. a reality that there is a guarantee that's signed in these deals, but it's a carve out guarantee. Issue. Right. And so then this is not, I'm sure, the legal term, but then that guarantee doesn't activate until you, you know, until, if you, until, unless you did something. Right. So then that, yeah, because I've, I've, uh, We've had people ask that. Yep. Too, or if this, you know, no, I do a bunch of these. Yeah. Looking at it. Yeah. Me and you can't answer it right now, but I can make one quick phone call, and then the attorney right. I work with quite a bit can answer it very easily. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, he responds in like two minutes. <laughs> right. So that's good. Good. Good choice there. So great. I think that's probably enough on the non-recourse piece. I mean, that's a big differentiator, and then especially when you have, if you're going to end up being a borrower, we have a many properties right. to other lenders. If you had all recourse loans to start looking at you. 
be a little worried maybe if you have every property is like full recourse. So right. then what I've liked about the program, obviously it's non-recourse on that property, but then collectively your your financial statement, it's, it looks a lot cleaner if you have a bunch of non-recourse deals. And then maybe just the recourse ones are reserved for the deals that are just kind of transitioning. It's a value-add deal right. or we're doing something to it. So that's, you know, I think that's a real important piece to to talk about. So I think that was that was great. Let's get into then the flexibility. So there's a lot of different options. Yeah. We printed out the the sheet of all the options here, but it's more than just, you know, like a lot of programs, I'd say it's a sort of, here's your standard five or seven year option or yeah. maybe a three and go. But this, there's a, you know, just a, a lot of different things that you can choose from. And we've been able to tailor it to the deals we've done. And actually with this program, I kind of learned uh, I started thinking about the loans differently, where I started thinking, especially if it's a deal we're acquiring, I started thinking about the prepay first, actually, yeah. where I've now assumed enough loans from people who did a full yield maintenance loan on a deal they weren't going to, they they like were the developer. They're not right. going to hold it forever. But then right. they went and they put a yield maintenance loan on that cost $2 million bucks to break, and then they got to sell it as an assumption deal. Right. That's good for us. We can do the paperwork and handle all that, but then that limits the buyer pool. Right. So, you know, one a couple of deals that I did that we did together, we were acquiring property. We knew there was value add to it. So we picked the most flexible prepay. Right. Yeah. And and if you look at the options that Freddie Mac specifically uh offers on the small balance program, they know exactly uh who they're competing against in this market. Banks give you flexibility for these small loans. And then they also knew that they could give you the best of both worlds with, you know, longer term, true permanent financing with more strict prepayment, uh, but better interest rates. So uh, Freddie Mac's program uh, specifically offers five, seven and 10 year fixed rate balloon loans. They also have hybrid prop, uh, products, which are, are fixed to floating. So their hybrids are five, seven, 10, the same fixed rate periods, but then after the fixed rate period, convert to a floating rate. Um, within each of these six products that I mentioned, they have three prepayment options. And in fact, the five-year has four prepayment options, as you know. Um, so the lowest interest rates are gonna come with yield maintenance. Yield maintenance is a very uh, common, non-recourse securitized loan prepayment penalty. Uh, very market driven, uh, but can be very penalizing, as you know. Um, so borrowers that are getting into that lowest rate product should be pretty certain that they're going to hold the loan for or the property for that ex entire fixed rate period. Um, in most cases, uh, Freddie Mac also offers a, a couple nice flexible options with step down prepays. Uh, their basic step down on a 10 year product is five, five, four, four, three, three, two, two, one, one. So 5% of the loan amount at the time you're paying off, uh, for the first two years, shifting to 4% years, three and four and so on until you get to years nine and 10 when it's 1%. Nice. Um, on the fixed rate product, which is a balloon loan, the last 90 days, there's no prepayment penalty. Um, that gives you time at the end of your fixed rate to refinance, sell, pay off the loan entirely, do whatever you want. They know at the end of those uh, fixed rate balloon loans that you need some time to figure out what to do next. Hopefully it's a refinance with them, but it right. doesn't have to be. Um, and when I say them, I mean us. Yeah. <laughs> uh, 
In the hybrid loans, that's a little different though. Your prepayment penalties in place for the entire fixed rate period. Um, and then during the floating rate period, it shifts to 1%. So on the five-year uh, hybrid uh, with yield maintenance, you would have five years of yield maintenance prepay, and then you'd have a 15-year floating rate loan term uh, during which time the prepayment penalty is 1%. Now that prepayment penalty can be waived and it's in the loan documents. If you sell the property on an arm's length transaction, they'll waive that 1% prepayment penalty. Or if you refinance on a Freddie Mac product, preferably with CBRE, <laughs> then that 1% would get it waived as well. So that hybrid's a nice product to build in flexibility. Yeah, and all the hybrids, they go out for 20 years. So then if you did the 10-year, there's a 10-year floating rate period right. after. And what I've really liked about the uh, the flow, the with the option, the hybrid, is you know a lot of the, the 2008 and nine crisis, a lot of the companies that went out of business or had the had all the biggest problems. They were they had their loans with a hard maturity date, right? 2008, 2009, yeah. And there was no lenders out there. For You're them. exactly right. And and I have one client that from the beginning said I will never do a balloon loan, yeah, because they've been caught over their long career a couple times. I mean, in recent history, you and I uh, can imagine if you had a balloon coming due March of 2020. Yeah. I mean, it figured itself out in a couple months, but you just don't want to be caught that way. So that hybrid really is a, a product that people value for the flexibility. And uh, it's a nice product to have a, an option with. Download our 100 plus page passive investing guidebook today. Accredited investors can sign up for our multifamily investment opportunities as well by hitting the invest now button on our website. Now back to the show. Yeah. And the actual rate in the floating rate period is not bad. It's like a fair spread. Yeah, it's not absolutely. And we're LIBOR went away. So we're over SOFR right now. And it's a 325 margin over that. Um, so, you know, I think the idea when people get into these is they're not going to float it for the entire floating rate right. period. But in in case there's no other options out there, you don't have to pay it off. Yeah. You know, just keep maintaining your property and keep making your monthly payments and you have that flexibility. Yeah. And then too, this, there's a actual, you know, there's set uh, either d deductions to the rate or add-ons, let's say with the prepay, like yield maintenance on the five-year, it yeah. would be, it's a specific deduction to the rate. So then you can kind of, as the borrower, you know how it works. It's not like a negotiation, like I'm doing a five-year yield maintenance. How much could I get off by doing yield maintenance? It's on the sheet. It's 15 yeah. basis points. Yeah. Yeah. You're doing Yeah. It. It's very programmatic in that regard. I mean, if in the, on the five year, you get a 15 basis point discount off of the standard rate. If you use yield maintenance on the seven and 10 year products, it would be a 20 basis point discount off the rate. So it makes life easy because we don't have to talk about it very long. There right. it is. <laughs> yeah. And then this, the, uh, let's say they have other step downs into whenever someone says they step down prepay, when they say these numbers in order, that's the amount per year, like sequentially. So if right. you go, Five, four, three, two, one. That's you know just the years. Yes. In uh, in order there, uh, you know, five percent right. year one, four percent right. year two. And I and and let's just mention real quick a product I know you've used that five year, uh, with their ultra flex prepay, um, which really competes well with banks, and is popular if, if for whatever reason if a sponsor is acquiring a property and they really think, you know, rate uh, rents are low and they can build them up, they have a three one zero zero zero. A product on that five-year meeting after two years there's no prepayment penalty yeah um so you have ultra flexibility to do whatever you'd like after two years sell the property um 
uh, refinance the property, pull a little cash out to do some CapEx. Um, but that product was specifically built uh, because we know a lot of these small property owners have plans to sort of value add and do something else quickly. Yeah. And that's, a, that's the prepay I used on all those, let's say second generation turns of that initial money I was talking about where initially we did, yeah, probably the standard step down and right. then not really, we did you know, we were just kind of thinking, let's get a good rate. And we didn't, we didn't know how quickly things were going to move. Right. So then on the next one, so we go, wow, we just did that in two years. Let's pay a little more on our, uh, you know, this, this add on and do the three, one, zero, zero, zero prepay. But then we're executing these business plans in a year or two. So we're going to pay a point or nothing to get out. Right. And then that's what we did. And then it worked out where we, you know, we did, I mean, and that one round of turning the money, I think we did six of them, but then also I did three on my own. And, right. you know, one of them always comes to mind where it was like a deal that I was going to renovate out of cash. So we had to explain that up front that that was a, right. like a exceptionally something to explain to them. But then, and then I renovated all the units, I added a unit, and then you're, uh, a year later, you're refined and you're just paying a point to get out. So it's right. a great, really great option. And then that, you know, I went with that because I wanted the full leverage. I was buying that deal on my own. So I wanted, you know, 80% LTV if you can get it. And then right. that, on a, on a deal like that, that's not, this is the only option if you also want non-recourse and, you know, so. Right. So yeah, it was a great, great execution on those deals for yeah. me using that. And I sure. think it, you know, the thought that Freddie Mac put into this program when they started it, um, virtually the prepayment options have not changed. I think that three one zero 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 was added a few years into the program, but clearly they uh, they were building a, a program to offer flexibility if you wanted it, right? And you'd pay a little extra to get it, but that's worth it to a lot of people. So. Yeah, and that's actually what I was saying. To kind of this is what taught me to think about the exit yeah. on those initial loans the most. Cause then, you know, if you're going to just have that loan for a year and a half, like the rate, it's obviously important, but it's more important to have that 1% or zero yeah. exit. Whereas if you did a, you know, you're not thinking and you say, oh, I'll do yield maintenance and then rates move a little and it's 20% to break your loan. Yeah. Well, that's, then you like, you need to match up your exit with your, yeah. With your business plan. I, I'd love to see that spreadsheet and hear you and Kundert's conversations on the yeah. analysis there. Yeah. <laughs> well, mean, that, there's a lot of things to think about. Yeah. That, that, yeah. It's really too was the, you know, you're just matching up your business plan. So there's for this, there's not, I'd say we're making more calculations on the perm loan like that, where right. this I'm going, I'm going to, I'm going to raise the rents. I'm going to create the value. I just, there's not any spreadsheet actually. I'm just doing yes. the three one zero zero. But then on the perm one, you're like, okay, what are you going to, uh, like, you know, there's a, decent rate difference if you're gonna do a five or ten year then right. you're really thinking like what's our again what's your business plan and then how you want to set it up and that's where it's harder to yeah that 10 year if that. you're going between yield maintenance or a 20 basis point higher rate to get uh, that step down flexibility but you're going to hold this asset forever and it's a low cap rate market that 20 basis yeah. points means a lot yeah it really does and then so the so yeah so six different options in terms of the fixed rate period in the or you know or fix the floating and then what about what's the amortization on these yeah these are all uh 30 year amortization uh uh interest only is an option on every one of these loans so in top and standard markets as a rule you can get one year of interest only uh on a five-year loan two years on a seven and then three years on a 10-year loan and then in small and very small markets that's no IO on a five year, one year of interest only on a seven year and two years of interest only on a 10 year. If you should choose, you yep. don't have to take the interest only. Of course, a lot of sponsors like it. Um, 
but it is an option there. And then there's, it's again, everything is so yeah. uh, formulaic with this. If you don't want the interest only, then they'll drop your rate a little. Yeah. So four so. basis points a year, 0.04% for every year um, you don't use, you know, your rate would go down. Right. And then to the, what you just had said, that's at full leverage then that's at the yeah. 80%. So then if someone, let's say I, I want, I like, you know, I, I don't want to lead you to the answer. So then what are the, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. So they also do offer, which a lot of lenders do full term interest only options. And so at six in, in top markets at 65% loan to value, 1.35 times underwritten debt service coverage you can opt to do a full term interest only. So that would mean on your five-year loan, five years of interest only payments. Um, same with seven, same with 10. We can do it with any product. Um, so that's a 65%, 135 in top markets. The debt service coverage goes up uh, as you get into smaller markets. Yeah. And then there's a, a rate interest rate add-on there's interest well. rate adders and really so uh, on that 65 percent, it's a fun one to run through because you get interest rate discounts for yeah. going from 80 to 70 to 65 percent you get uh debt service coverage discounts from going from 120 to 130 you're at 135 and then there's that four basis point adder every year of interest only that you have to go through so right. interest only costs a little more um uh, but it's there as an option for someone looking at that cash flow that really wants to to do a lower leverage deal. Yeah. So there's a lot of options. Let's make sure we hit them all because then you just touch on two more. But yeah, different uh, fixed rate and floating rate terms, different interest only. Yep. Different prepays. Yep. Maybe and, I'll talk about the pricing breaks for LTV. You get a break at 70%, 65%, and then again at 55%. And then every uh you get uh pricing breaks depending on the market you're in for higher debt service coverage so in top markets you get a break at 130 140 and 150. um and those are again very formulaic so we don't even have to negotiate or have a discussion about yeah. them it just is what it is yeah the only and then i guess that should lead into waivers then the uh so i think that's sort of the standard program all the different options a lot of things you can choose from and then from there, you can request waivers. Right. You know, so then, what what's sort of possible? And this is just it's just sort of at their discretion. So if they like your deal, let's say, yeah, what is possible to ask for? Yeah, I mean, uh, I've asked for uh, you know anything's possible to ask for for the right deal. So there was a specific deal, maybe that was at seventy uh, percent, but they wanted one year extra of interest only. Uh, historically, I've not been afraid to ask for that right now, probably a little harder to get than two, three years ago. You know, I've been in heavy competitive situations on really well located assets where I needed maybe a, a little pricing help on the interest rate. I'm never afraid to ask for that. Um, the sponsorship uh, uh, waiver that we talked about, the sponsorship exception waiver, um, if the story's right uh, and there's a real compelling reason as to why I think this individual uh, uh, is experienced and would be a good fit for our program. Never afraid to ask for that. Um, on a rehabbed property, they want to see 90% occupancy for 90 days on every property. They want to see 90% occupancy for 90 days or more. Um, if I've got a newly rehabbed property that stabilizes and say, I'm going to submit for approval in the second month that that's stabilized, I'm not afraid to ask for, you know, a, a T2 or a 60 yeah. day stabilization. Um, if there's a reason to ask for that. Um, so 
there's a, of course, you know, it's, it's a pared down list of exceptions on every deal uh, that you have to go through and, you know, lean on your underwriting team, yeah. your counterparts there to make sure you're meeting everything. Um, but there's a lot of reasons where, uh, where it makes sense to ask for waivers and we do it all the time. I mean, we have a great relationship with the, the Freddie Mac team. Um, uh, the leader of production in the uh, North Central is uh, 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 an employee of theirs named Joyce Judah. And you've met yeah. her and I talk to her every day. Um, and, you know, sometimes she tells me no and sometimes she tells me yes, but it's, you know, right. she's never, she, she doesn't ever uh, ignore my requests. Right. You know, she, she looks hard into them, reviews with underwriting when needed. And, uh, and if it makes sense, she gets behind it. Yeah. And then it's interesting as you're, ex you're, explaining all this, I would say the to like, if you invest in our deals, like we are bringing, I guess, a lot of advantages on the, uh, in a lot of aspects of the deal, but also in the debt. Cause I mean, we're, I think we've gone in and done some T1 waivers, which yep. probably not, not normal, meaning like we just, you get the rent roll to where you want the, what you want to use for the NY workup on the loan sizing. Yeah. And it's like, we got that on the first and we're sending it in on the fifth, you know, yeah. that's not, not for everyone can do that, but yeah, we've done that. Yeah. And for the right, that's a, a perfect example of here's why, uh, here's why we're asking for a T one, because we did this work. We value added rents are bumping on August 1st and we're going to submit on August 15th for right. approval. And, you know, we can sit here and wait for three months, but this makes sense to look at it now. So we're never afraid to ask that question. Yeah. And then for the, depending on who the borrower is, we're like, they, we, at this point, like actually all know each other. Right. And then this said, you know, could have been that that time, the 15th loan I did. And, you know, right. where they go, okay, like we get it. And then, right. Or we could just sit here and wait for 80 days and then, then do it. So right. And that, yeah, that makes, that makes sense. But it's interesting that I, yeah, that we've done that and all those ones are stabilized and we pretty much did that. Or yeah. We just at the oh, it totally, it totally summer. makes sense in certain situations. And, and you bring up a great point and, you know, we, we emphasized it earlier, but sponsorship experience is, goes a long way. Um, so if I've got an experienced sponsor asking, you know, to underwrite to collections for the last two months instead of the last three, they'll strongly consider it for the right reasons. Yeah. So then would they, there's waivers for the interest rate, potentially you could ask for a discount. If if they, yes. If there's a competitive situation and a compelling reason and a, you know, it's a, it's an experienced sponsor and it's a great property and we need it, I'm going to ask for it. And then waivers for the, the, uh, what month, how many months going back we're sizing the loan? Yeah. What, what else? Exp the experience yeah, we've talked about. If I don't have, like, there's a technical ex exception if you don't have a stabilized trailing 12 month statement. Um, well, a lot of times right. I don't because yeah, it's value add properties or, or whatever. Um, you know, and I'm refinancing. Someone can give me a T12, but they didn't fill it until two months right. ago. Um, there's technical exceptions there. Um, there's an exception if you're, uh, this one's harder, but if you're self-managing a property and live a hundred miles or more away, oh, interesting. That's an exception. Um, so, I mean, there's probably a list of 20, 25 exceptions that, you know, most of them don't come into play. Um, they they do have us review every loan below one point two million dollars now because you're getting close to that one million dollar threshold. Oh, interesting. So, just to make sure, like. You know, everyone's clear that this is going to be a smaller loan. Most of the time, the answer, if, if everything else lines up, is yes. But if it goes below a million dollars, we can't do it, right. which everyone understands. Um, link loans, to talk about those a little bit. 
Um, we pre-screen every one of those and that would be one loan on more than one property. There's very specific category. These have to be managed together. They have to be close together. They have to be reported on together with rent rolls and P and L's. But sometimes there's a reason to do those type of deals. Do they need to be contiguous or? They don't need to be contiguous in the link loan program. A, a contiguous property we would just do as a sort yeah, of a, yeah. a regular loan. That makes sense. In the link program, they have to be within three miles of each other. They all have to be more than five units. They all have to be reported on together. Um, the loan amount has to be $2 million or more on a link loan. Um, but that's another conversation that I'm always having with them early. Right. Vet that deal out early so there's, you know, so no one's uh, surprised and, and we get sort of the blessing, the early blessing from their underwriting team to move forward with those deals. What do the link loans look like then? So let's say it's a two and a half million dollar total loan on five properties. That's a it's five five hundred thousand dollar loans or it's one two and a half. One, one loan. Yeah, that's why it needs to be kind of all together. All together. OK, makes sense. Ownership has to be common, right? Uh, typically the, a similar entity owning all the properties. Um, there are adders to the interest rate. There are adders to underwritten debt service coverage for link loans. Um, un there's some underwriting nuances, like we're underwriting to a repair reserve a little higher than a normal deal. Yeah. Um, but they'll consider those and they do them. Yeah, it's a good option, especially if you're in a place where you'd have to kind of group together your properties to get to that sort of value. Yeah. Yeah, that's a nice. Yeah. And so I think what they do is, you know, they don't want to see you grouping together loans to get to a $1.1 million deal right. just to get in the program. But there's deals where it really makes sense to finance a couple properties under one loan. Yeah. And and they're, they they have options for that if you need it. Yeah. And I'm sure that, that helps a lot with their goal because in these places, if you had to link together a few properties, obviously it's an affordable area yeah. price-wise in terms of the rent. Yeah. yeah. Either smaller properties or, you know. Uh, you're dealing with uh, properties on a per unit basis may may not be worth as much. Right. Yeah. So then that's going to be under probably under lended on anyways, because then that's, you know, these are small loans. So right. not everyone's doing those. So it's nice to be able to group them together and right. make it a you know, more meaningful loan amount. Great. Well, yeah, then what let's see what else closing costs I think we haven't touched. Yeah. On. So and that's pretty programmatic as well. All of these loans require we've mentioned before third party legal counsel. So a uh, a single counsel, we call them. The, the single counsel would re be representing Freddie Mac and CBRE on the lending side. Um, and then an appraisal is required on every transaction. A physical risk report is required on every transaction. Um, and then there would be searches, public searches on sponsors and borrowing entities just for background checks and right. things of that nature. So typically we're seeing closing costs, lender closing costs between thirteen dollars and $15,000. Um, which is pared down and streamlined. Maybe a bank's going to be cheaper than that, but you know, for non-recourse lending, this is about as good as we see. Right. Yeah. And a conventional kind of more normal non-recourse loan, you could be double that in lender legal yeah. pretty quick. Yep. Yeah. Where then, and then, cause the, the way, I mean, all the ones I've done that I can recall with CB, it's, it was $7,000 for the third parties. Yeah. And then, so that's the reports you talked about, appraisal, yep. physical, and sometimes some sort of searches. environmental search to yeah. plus the borrower searches and then 7,000 give or take. Yeah. Legal. I mean, legal's become I legal probably comes in in between 65, uh, 6,200 and, and seven grand. Um, you know, if there's, you know, a legal nuance that creates a little more work, uh, a tick borrower, for yeah, example, something like that. 
um, there may be a little additional cost, but I think we see most of those coming in in the low 6,000s. Nice. Yeah. yeah, so that's definitely streamlined. And then the, um, what about origination to the intermediary? How do you? Yeah, so, I mean, certainly there's origination fees at uh, at times, uh, depending on the, the transaction, um, you know, that varies. I mean, it could be depending on the deal size, anywhere from zero to one point. You know, if you're dealing with, dealing with a small deal, that's going to be more work and, uh, you know, uh, you know, require extra effort on your underwriting team and, and sort of this, the Freddie Mac underwriting team. Uh, there may be a push to charge an origination fee. Um, but as you get to bigger deals, maybe there's flexibility there. Yeah. And then that's too, because then on a, on a bigger deal, you're, you, the origination fee can be kind of worked into the rate is what you're, you're yeah. doing that more easily. And, and, and frankly, on a smaller deal too, it's harder on a smaller deal. Um, but Freddie Mac knows there's bank competitions out there that close right. these deals for very low cost. Right. So there's, there's flexibility to get, get deals done in that regard for lower cost. Right. So yeah, real, real efficient program in terms of the, the closing costs. And then to one thing I'll touch on where this is, then it ends up more maybe on the borrower, but then Freddie and I think Fannie, they require more title endorsements than like probably a typical bank not so maybe for i'd say for that on the deals i'm doing i pencil in like about two thousand dollars extra for that mm -hmm. just an extra it depends on the bank maybe if you're some banks is probably just they want that same stuff but then right. i have noticed that they they're asking for quite a few endorsements on at closing which you know just factor that in so if we we're saying it's about thirteen thousand to do the loan then it's rounded up to 15 right. that's what it's gonna that's what it's gonna be let's talk next about ongoing loan covenants for these loans that's a big advantage against really banks there aren't any ongoing uh, loan covenants there are reporting requirements uh, as you know well a couple times a year we're going to ask for uh, property operating statements we're going to ask for rent rolls uh, these loans are service. There's a servicer involved in all these loans. CBRE that we have a servicing department that services all these loans. So if uh, debt service coverage dips below one percent, um, occupancy is uh, very low for an ongoing period of time, they may reach out and and ask why and get involved into um, you know how it's going to be rectified, get an understanding of what's going on at the property. Um, so there, there certainly aren't loan covenants in place that you have to follow per the loan documents, but that doesn't mean that there aren't eyes on what's going on at the property and there isn't going to be a, an effort to understand what's going on and how it can be approved if property performance is dipped. Right. I think a huge, huge advantage for this program is not having an ongoing debt service coverage ratio covenant. So you have, a, let's say, compare it with the bank loan right. where they need, if you're dipped below a 120 debt cover is a default. Right. Now you're, there's a conversation, how are we gonna cure this default? Where on the Fannie and Freddie small balance, there is a conversation too, but since there's not a loan covenant, there's not a default and they're just basically, they're, uh, what they can do at that point is just, we're gonna ask you for more information because we're worried, Right. but that's that's it right. as far as I know. Yeah, no, you're right. Yeah, there are not any loan uh, covenants uh, like that in the loan documents and it's a big benefit. Um, but there, there's certainly, uh, there's certainly our reporting requirements. Right. Uh, they're strict about that. They want to see that we see rent rolls 90 days after the year's up. We see property level P and L's 90 days after the year's up. They want to uh, continually monitor the performance of the properties from a servicing standpoint. But you're not going to get put in default if something dips a little. Right. Low. 
Yeah, I think there's also inspections just here yeah. and there. I'm, I'm not sure what the frequency is because it's, it's, there's... Yeah, there's supposed to be biannual inspections. So our servicing team would coordinate a biannual every other year inspection on all the loans we do. Uh, at those inspections, if there were some deficiencies when we originated the loan, say, you know, some minor repairs right. needed to be made, they'd confirm that was the case. And just look at the general overall condition of the property. Um, so that does happen uh, every couple of years, but but that's right. going to be the extent of it. Yeah, I started smiling and trailing off on the frequency because I feel like I'm being constantly asked for some inspection. Because also your insurance company to often wants to go through the property. So then, and then once you right. have, have 30 properties, so then it just feels like they're just constantly being asked for some. You have to hire a full time employee so, to yeah. handle inspections on their so, own. Yeah, or um, just to flip it to somebody. Yeah, it, or we just push it to the property manager right away. Right. Like the deal we just bought in Arizona, we insurance company needs needs someone to actually this one. It's, a, it's like a self inspection. I don't know if it's a COVID thing, but you need some exact photos. Right. We just flip that to the property manager. So and that, try that, to yeah. make it easy on yourself. So you don't need to necessarily meet the, you know, it's not like the head of Freddy's going out there to your property. They're right. sending a third party person who's, you know, they, they need to check a few things and get on to the next one. Yeah. It's, it's prudent to have boots on the ground as a lender. And, and the, that's what we do. And like you said, it's, it's oftentimes a third party vendor. Um, they want to tour the property with someone who's knowledgeable of the property. So the property manager at that asset is perfect. And they're not at a witch hunt for anything. They're just right. making sure that the property uh, is performing well. There's not any life safety concerns, things of that nature. It is. It's really similar to what the insurance company is inspecting for. Right. So we'll get these back, and it'll be you know your battery and your security light in the hallways dead or some. And I don't even know who it's. I'm not. I'm not even paying much attention to who it's from, the lender or the insurance company, because it's looking at the a lot other. of similar stuff where it's right. okay. Well, great, we got a free battery test. Then let's, uh, let's right. fix it. So, but yeah, then. Also, one thing that I think would be worth touching on, because it it kind of seems to keep coming up on deals we're either looking at or we get contacted a lot by these like Airbnb companies. So then, what would be allowed for Airbnb with with Freddie or Fanny? Like that yeah, sort of short. Good question, line. and that has become a less popular question over the past couple of years, but became a popular question a couple of years after the property or the program started. Uh, in the small balance world. If there's any short-term leasing done by the owner, that's a no-no. It doesn't fit for the program. Um, if there's a lease by our landlord to a company that specializes in short-term rentals, it doesn't work. Got it. Uh, if there's a individual tenant that you sign a lease to, they go through their background checks, they qualify as a tenant, and unbeknownst to you, the owner, that tenant is in turn... Uh, VRBOing their unit, uh, there's not a whole lot of control anyone has over that. So that stuff happens and I guess is allowed, but it's not technically allowed. Like if you know it's going to happen, we should bring that up up front and probably they're not going to be okay with it. But in the case where it's a true tenant of yours doing it without your knowledge, it happens and and, and that's fine. Yeah. And so then so you're not, you can't rent to a company who would do it or an individual that's like their business. Right. But if a tenant starts doing it, it's not like Freddie or Fanny is forcing you to put in your lease. This is banned. Right. Right. Okay, exactly. Right. It yeah. happens. It happens. We have to assume it happens and it's just too hard to control. Right. Yeah. We were just looking at a deal in, in Tempe, Arizona, and they, I think every renovated unit, this one Airbnb operator and individuals kept taking them down. Right. Cause they're allowing that. So right. then I, you know, I, I told the broker like that's going to jam up probably a lot of people's permanent financing options. Yes. And then, 
he had some explanation that like, well, I think 5% or 10% is allowed. And yeah. And in the conventional program, it's a, a little different. There is a small in, in Freddie and Fanny's conventional program. There's a small percentage that would be allowed in the small balance world. It's not. So it's not on my radar screen at all. Yeah. And this was a small balance size thing, but I don't, I don't right. you know, it's not advisable to get into it with, you know, just explain where I think I know differently or something where, and, right. and also it's a different market. Who knows? Maybe, maybe there could have been a different rule and more a vacation area where, you know, could in be. Phoenix, we need to cap it at 10 because every, you know, that's enough or something. But yeah, interesting. Cause that's something where, yeah, at least a few years ago, we were getting constantly uh, contacted by companies where some sort of Airbnb like concept of Sonder and just Bungalow, all these, these companies where it's something like that, but they're signing a corporate lease with you. Like it's in their company's name. So I know it's not. I knew it wasn't allowed. I yeah, we that. saw a lot. I saw a lot. I've seen a lot of it over the past several years. And yeah, um, it's a pretty easy and quick conversation on my side. Yeah, because that comes up uh, actually fairly often on deals we're looking at where it just came up, but also like a, a building will be built. They're trying to move the units. And then an Airbnb person comes to me and says, I'll take five. Right. Sounds great. You know, and then they don't they don't realize then, OK, if this person wanted to do this loan program, now we're, you know, that's just like that's a hassle that's five empty units once we you know once once uh, that bar were closed right exactly they want to they got to clear them up yeah i have i have some clients that were that had uh several of them like you said but then got out of it yeah. as those leases turn they they went with traditional market uh tenants because it it hamstrung them from a financing right standpoint. yeah so just something to know if you want to use the program going in if you're you know if it's using a different lender don't guess don't worry about it but right you know something something to know what about on the loan docs? How much room is there to negotiate the docs? Yeah, there's really no room. Um, so, I mean, I know the documents pretty well. Obviously, I lean on single legal counsel uh, uh, to get into the the uh, nitty gritty of those loan documents. But there's virtually zero uh, uh, negotiation, which, again, makes it easy, unfortunately, I guess, for borrowers. But yeah. And well, what's interesting, I would say the starting point of a lot of other lenders loan docs, you're you're negotiating to get them to more of a range where these ones are starting out. Right. That's my experience. Yeah. Where yeah, and I, I don't get I, I'm trying to think of complaints I get about the loan documents. I've had a handful over the five years, but for the most part, I don't hear much about it. The, yeah, for what it is, I think it's fair. Right. Yeah, I where we, you know, the first, the first loan of any type I do, I'm reading those docs cover to cover. So I'm, you know, right. maybe the one borrower who's ready. No, I think a lot are. Paid loan agreement, but that. <laughs> I just know. get involved when they have problems, so. Yeah. So I remember, you know, we read it and actually some of the changes they made to them too recently, this is more clear what's going on. And for the, well, we don't need to get into that level of detail, but they, I, some of the changes they make, then I, even at this point I ask, can I get a track changes version of, against the prior ones? And then I can right. to see the changes with, cause they, they do change the form loan docs, you know, uh, every couple of years. So there was a, some bigger changes a couple of years ago that I remember just right. asking the attorney for a track changes version versus like another deal that were they friendly and gave it to you? Yeah. Good. I was just, well, you, yeah, you're using the same att yeah. attorney on most, right. All the, the loans. So then he already already like, he had know each other at this point too. Yeah. yeah so, but yeah, I think that's that's kind of it on the the program. Unless there's anything else you wanted, you can think of to touch on. No, I mean it was a great opportunity to talk about it. Um, yeah, I think we talked about nuances and small differences between Freddie Mac and Fannie Mae, um, but both are good programs. Uh, both offer competitive rates. Both are obviously non-recourse, so 
that's a big benefit to a lot of borrowers. Um, and I think another comment to make is both Freddie Mac and Fannie Mae are committed to the program for the long term. Yeah. And we constantly hear that uh, the program's not going away. So we're, uh, of course, glad to hear that, but really do believe in in our program and believe that these are competitive uh, competitive loans. And actually, just when you were saying Freddie and Fannie, I just realized we we have this Freddie sheet. Out, yes. And so we did steer this conversation to almost all Freddie towards the tail end there. So then I guess real quick for Fannie, they have different different options on fixed rate and then they're more. Yeah, you Freddie. bring up a good so point there because uh, I guess to finish on that, they do kind of ebb and flow like at some point in 2000. 18, something was going on where Freddie, I think I had done the value add so quickly. They were like, let's wait a second on this loan or something on the, the one of the deals we did, the 3100 prepan. So we went we went to Fannie. There was a reason. It was either Freddie was kind of at a capacity or they were like, we don't, we want you to wait on that deal. But then Fannie, which is a totally different right. entity, was like, we're fine with this loan. Right. Make it. Yeah. And you're right. They have ebbed and flowed interest rate wise uh over the uh sort of five six years i've been doing this um so yeah they're two different entities rates are up and down uh pretty much their programs have stayed the same same we talked about five seven and ten year fixed rate rates with freddie mac fanny offers five seven and ten but then goes longer uh 12 15 and 30 for those that would be interested in longer rates and yeah like i mentioned those are going to be higher rates but uh makes sense for some borrowers yeah i remember in 2018 that loan i'm talking about we did we rates are running up so i made the genius move i locked in a 12 year yeah fixed rate yield maintenance deal at five uh i think five point <laughs> yeah eight, well one eight can't win them all drew sorry yeah. no no so that yeah that'll happen <laughs> um yeah i can't predict it but yeah things are running up heavy so it's uh right you know who would have predicted right you know, the, the move from there but Great. Well, kind of last couple of questions then. What can just generally then, what can a, a borrower, borrower do, you know, to just kind of best position themselves? So we're going to bring uh, a deal to, to Freddie, let's say. Right. What, is there something I should be doing ahead of time? Well, that's a good question. I mean, of course we want that property to be stabilized. So we want to be at 90% occupancy or better. Um, and you're going to put uh, long-term financing on it. So, uh, in theory, you'd want those rents to be at an optimal level because you're going to lock up financing with a prepayment penalty. So access to cash out financing may not be there for at least five years. Um, but but really, you know, we're going to request P&Ls. We're going to request rent rolls. That should be easy. Personal financial information wise, it's not too difficult. Personal financial statements, things of that nature. But once those properties are sort of in a position where they're stabilized, it's always worth talking about what the options are. Right. Yeah, so really just sort of to prepare, sort of knowing what's what's coming was sort of the answer I had heard. So you can work with your lender. Yep. You know, ahead of time to know what what I need to prepare. Yeah. Uh, get those get those P and Ls together, get those rent rolls together, put them in front of an originator like me, and then talk about the nuances for underwriting. Do we have to talk about what an appraisal taxes are going to look like? Is your R and M sort of in line with the market? Um, but it, you know, that all starts with just getting, uh, uh, the detail on a stabilized property. Well, Jim, this was a lot of fun. Thanks for being on. Yeah. And thanks for having me. It was a lot of fun, Drew. Always a pleasure uh, to sit with you. Uh, very simply email address for me is james.voza, V as in Victor, O-Z-Z-A at CBRE.com. Uh, or a phone call works just as well. A telephone number 847 Great. Well, yeah. Thanks for being on. And now you've heard 
really everything about the Fannie and Freddie small balance programs. I think it's the best single option for non-recourse stabilized debt on multifamily properties. So definitely, if you like what you heard today, you know, reach out, give, you know, put one on your property, give it a try. Yeah. So thanks again. Great. Thanks for joining us. We'll see you on the next episode. If you learned something from today's show, leave a review and hit that subscribe button wherever you enjoy your podcast. Dive deeper into real estate investing on Brenneman Capital's website, Brenneman.com, where we have numerous free resources and information that can help both active and passive real estate investors. Accredited investors can get started today as a passive investor in our multifamily investment opportunities by hitting the Invest Now button on our website. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are those of Drew Brenneman and guests as of the date of recording and do not purport to reflect the views or opinions of Brenneman Capital LLC and its subsidiaries. Views and opinions are provided for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon or deemed as investment or tax advice or an offer to buy or sell securities. The speaker cannot be held responsible for any direct or incidental loss incurred by applying any of the information offered.